Hey everyone, we got a really great episode here and I think we're really finding our formula, our our groove to set into with the core members of Chris, Luke, and myself. But I wanted to give you a heads up that as we figure out that groove, we happen to be in three different locations in the United States and there are some audio complications, particularly some weird quirk that came up on Luke's track from time to time. I think the episode is totally still listenable. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Bear with us while we work out the kinks, but really the core is all about us hanging out, and I'm so glad that you are hanging out with us. Here's the show. So hey, this is uh, we're the Cardboard Herald. Thanks for hanging out with us. Um, we've got Chris, that's myself, Luke, and Jack with us today, and we're going to talk about some games that we're playing, and some other stuff that we're getting into, and some news and fun stuff that's out there. So, um, hey, Jack, let's start with you. What have you been playing lately, man? Man, I have been playing a lot of stuff. I died miserably in Spirit Island the other night, so I'm still playing tons of that. If you've been listening to the show for a while, still hot on the Spirit Island tip, but uh, the big new thing that I played and I did a review for it was uh, this this Tale of Ord thing, and Mm -hmm. it's not an escape room mimicking game it's not like unlock or escape the game but it is kind of like this puzzle narrative adventure thing where you get by mail packages that are in sequence and they continue this story that you're solving chapter by chapter and you're using all kinds of puzzle solving techniques in order to decipher things and it just kind of blew my mind that it, it 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 extended beyond the table in really interesting ways. Uh, I actually talked to someone on the interview podcast about what he called pervasive games, which I guess there's some big pervasive game going on in um, in your neck of the woods, Luke, uh, in Philly. Well, mm-hmm. I guess more your neck of the woods than my neck of the woods currently here in Alaska. Sure. But <laughs> uh, just like having all kinds of space and time elements actually affecting how you interact with the game and being able to use real world problem solving as indicators to like get through puzzles. And it's hard to talk about because I, I, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but it's, it's almost as if you are, untethered by gaming itself you you have so many instincts for parameters and gaming and this truly gives you these puzzles and are like yo dog you solve it if you need to research like some nordic rune stones go for it if you need to call into this uh this puzzle solving some friends you need to visit in another night 
you got it. Like it, it just huh. encourages you to experiment in really interesting and fun ways. I have never played anything like it. Uh, my wife, myself, and our friend devoured the first two chapters. I got another two chapters sitting on my desk in order to tackle. So that's probably the most like revelatory thing that I've done lately. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the chapters. Is that something like a legacy game then, or kind of like the in the sense that well, there there is no central board. So it's all components. You know, you get sent a letter and then maybe some newspaper clippings and then maybe some weird cards that have slots or something in it. And how does this all kind of fit together? And it it encourages you to actually write on these things because some of them have, (laughs) the best way I could put it, is transformative properties uh, that you may only be able to... um, understand under certain conditions and so you might actually write on the objects themselves even against every instinct that you have as a gamer to actually document what they're supposed to mean Mm -hmm. during their transformative state which isn't necessarily always going to be the conditions in which you're playing the game and then components from the first chapter may actually come into play in the second chapter which may come into play in the third and fourth and none of this is really well defined for you but it's set up in just such a great way that encourages you to to experiment and the sense of like the best way i can put it is you know games are are all about the emotional reaction that we have not the mechanics the mechanics are there to facilitate that emotional reaction and I've never played a game Mm. that made me feel so clever in doing it. Not that I'm typically like a real book smart type of person. I don't do Sudoku puzzles. I don't do those crypto quote things that were in the newspaper forever. But (laughs) this just made all three of us feel like we were always on the precipice of discovery. And Mm -hmm. as soon as we made one little little foothold i guess you know one little discovery that kind of recontextualize everything else and suddenly we would reevaluate everything else each chapter has like four or so primary puzzle objectives that you're working towards and you can solve mm-hmm. them in parallel and there's a really cool clue system online if you need to rely on it that allows you to be like hey you're working on this puzzle here's like 20 clues that we have that you can sequentially click on if you need it and it gives you just the slightest nudge in the right direction so that way it doesn't really spoil that sense of discovery like you don't feel like it solved it for you and then you also get to put in the solution online and you use all kinds of stuff like if there's a phone number on a document you should try calling that phone number (laughs) if there's an email or a web address you know in a newspaper clipping you should probably check that 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 website it's pretty crazy how elaborate this is especially for a first first time game designer which um uh rita orlov who contacted me to see if i wanted to do a review of this uh it's her first game design and she's like a conceptual artist in in uh, New York, not even conceptual artists, more like modern art, just clever 
physical objects and interesting things being manipulated in interesting ways for all sorts of artistic purposes. Wow, and it sounds like that in this game too. It also seems like things that really like blur that line between game and reality, man, I'm all about. Which is interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, fun fact, the first thing that comes up on Google when you search this game is your review of it, number one, which is pretty awesome. Nice. Cardboard yeah. Herald, whoop. You know, we're the best. When uh, <laughs> Google <yeah>. certified. Um, <laughs> so I went to the official website of it and everything and was looking through the information while you were talking. And the price tag for this game is yeah. pretty steep. Oh, yeah. Gotta say. Um, 165 bucks for the four scenarios, mm-hmm. and each scenario is roughly three to four hours, which means 16 hours of gameplay for, uh, it's about 41, 42 bucks per pack. Uh-huh. Rough. Yeah, and I, I tackle that in the review itself, so mm-hmm. I, I bring up at the end that, hey, I can't do this review without mentioning that this is 160 bucks, and... I acknowledge in the review that I'm coming from a place of privilege because I've been sent a review copy of this. I'm not out that money. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, the experience that we had, which this truly was like an experience. This was not like a typical board game. This was something that I think will be an iconic moment in the friendship that I have with this friend that we tackled the first two chapters with. It it was something that we did with her right before she was moving town. And then we finished it on Skype after she moved to Oregon, which was awesome. And the, the hours that the three of us put into it were so incredibly packed with excitement and and joy and discovery that it it did feel almost like an elaborate team building activity more than Mm -hmm. anything else and so is this something that i would recommend to someone if it were a binary choice you know terraforming mars or this i would say that terraforming mars at like a third of the price or spirit island or or whatever other game has just a ton of replay value you know, maybe uh, Terra Mystica is another game that comes to mind of just tons of combinations and methods of play and that kind of thing. And I, if it's a binary choice, I'd say, no, I would go with the, the box game that's going to give you tons upon tons of hours and, and ways to really dive in. But for the type of experience that we had, three people probably getting about three hours per session... And we ended up with three sessions for the uh, first two chapters because we ended up revisiting it halfway through the second chapter mm-hmm. once she had moved away via Skype. And sure. it, it was completely worth it. Better than any movie theater experience than I've ever had. And I probably would have paid more for the three of us to go to the movie <laughs> theater for the period of time in which we played this game. So if that's kind of your standard, I I don't know. This was some of the most riveting gaming that I've ever done. You know, I was actually just using the movie reference, talking to someone just the other day about like putting out forty to sixty bucks for an IMAX flick, compo- uh, as opposed to putting out forty or sixty for a game. And 
It was interesting that that conversation. We all probably know where it goes, but I have some video game buddies that are like sixty dollars, hundred dollars for a game, and I'm like, hey, remember you're paying sixty for a disc. Um, so it's about perception here, and I, I'm with you, Jack. I'd much rather have um, the experience for sure. Yeah, uh, Luke, I want to get to you in a second, Luke, because you're you're playing something that I've been very interested in. And the last uh, uh, the last podcast that I wasn't a part of, I when I was listening to it, I was like, oh, man, he's hitting this one on the head. So I'm going to save that for last year. I wanted to talk about okay. uh, a, one of the only games we brought with us. So I just happened to get this new game, Lorenzo Il Magnifico. And boy, was it Magnifico. All our stuff got packed. We just recently moved to Arizona. And in fact, our stuff is still in transit. And so, you know, we're very limited with our games. But uh, our homeboy Lorenzo has been hanging out with us. And uh, I don't know, have you guys <laughs> played this one by chance? I have, I have not. not, no. Uh, it's an interesting one. You basically you have cards uh, that you select, buildings, territories, ventures and characters and you there's ways that you can buy resources to acquire these things and basically the big what a lot of people love about this game is you have your own um your player board and as you're getting these cards you kind of build this engine on your player board and then there's like kind of like an activation spot it's like a harvest spot production spot on the main board and when you go to it it lets you activate everything that you have uh, on your board, but it depends on dice rolls. So you there's three colored dice that match the colors of your workers And so when you roll them your workers are going to have different values each time and when those cards come up on those spots They're also going to have different values and so, you know bouncing back and forth from trying to you know slip cards from underneath uh, each other was a really cool thing uh, the theme eh, you know we're nobles I guess uh, you're part of the Medici family? Come on. <laughs> One of the most important Renaissance families of all time. Didn't you play Assassin's Creed 2? Nobles. <laughs> um, <laughs> nobles. I was just like, uh, you're just a noble family. Um, but, you know, there's, there's just the, you know, you mentioned mechanics and like I, mechanics can get me alone on a game. My wife, you know, it has to be pretty, uh, you know, oh, pretty games. But for me, you can get me on mechanics in this one totally did it especially with all the different ways you can combo and then you know say you know you can have one through six on the dice rolls on your player board and if you roll a four you would just activate everything that's four and less if you rolled a three you'd activate everything that's three and less you also have uh what my wife loved um is servants which i called slaves and you just basically <laughs> add these little purple meeples to increase your dice roll by a pip yeah. And so my wife loved it because, you know, we we have this constant running joke about feeding your family and and how she just kind of like she'll lose games because she doesn't ever really she she's not a big feed the family mechanic. So when we got a game with slaves that you can just throw away, oh, she was all about it. All about it. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the game is fun and i i guess uh you know it was the only one we had out uh that that you know because we had just gotten it and so everything else was packed and um sure it was just it was just kept us busy and uh the only real I, i'm not big on like resetting a game each time so you just redeal the four cards and then you keep going there's some other things like different tracks that you can uh, uh, different ways to lots of different ways to win lots of different ways to score 
Um, you can you can use the purple cards, for example, stack victory points for the end and give you a little boost during the game. The the green cards are kind of production. It will get you the wood and the stuff that you need to get the yellow cards, etc. So, um, Jack, you might know this most about me is like I'm huge on just like the economic stuff and the worker placement. And yeah, like this totally. one is kind of this one totally had it for us. So uh, that that was our little experience with Lorenzo Il Magnifico. And then just a sidebar, uh, we've been playing a little game called Dose. And it was from the, makers, <laughs> the sequel, makers of, the makers of Uno. And I did look oh this up. God. If you try to uh, compare it to Uno, you will definitely be disappointed because it's really nothing like Uno. Um, in fact, it's got yes, a couple... all of the, the high expectations that Uno would lead me right? to hold. <laughs> Uh, well, no, it was like they said, hey, we've had Uno for so long, so we decided to make another game. They made Dose. And, of course, the two is the wild card and all that. And um, and it's just basically everybody's getting rid of their – we've been doing it with the family. Everybody's getting rid of their hands. Um, and the first one to get rid of their hands, you score everyone else's points. And you're just kind of putting cards down in the middle. you know. And so, But this one's kind of cool because if there's a seven, you can combo a three and a four to place it two cards everything's dose themed everything's dose and of course if you have two cards and you don't say dose and someone says dose before you do you're pulling two cards you know everything's two 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 so it's it's been more of like the whimsy and the uh, the fun little kind of like hey uno but it's dose you know and so um, the, <laughs> the kids love it <laughs> yeah yeah man you know uh but you know, if it's not as tight, that's okay. You know, the sophomore album is sometimes a difficult thing to get exactly. over that hurdle. Because right. if you do something exactly like the debut, then people are going to be disappointed that you didn't innovate. But if you do something that's different, people are going to be like, but I fell in love with the original sound. It's tough. Mm -hmm. and, the maker, and the makers of this I was reading were like, hey, look, we just wanted to make another game. And so... <laughs> Finally! <laughs> Dose. Yeah, yeah. After Don't Dose. talk to me about Uno ever again. Here's Dose. <laughs> Every, they were just like in a meeting like, what do we call this new game? What, what could we possibly call it? And there's one guy who's like, what about Dose? Like it's the sequel. What about Brilliant? Brilliant. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Yeah, exactly. They're like, all right, guys, you know what? We're brainstorming where it's throwing spaghetti at the wall. Come on. Let's let's just figure this out. First thing I'm going to say is Uno. And they didn't even have a concept. And then someone said Dose. And it's like, make the game. Done. I don't even want to hear about anything else. And someone else has like this idea. They're like, oh, the, I have this wonderful game that's going to bridge us into a new era. And it's like, screw you, Thomas. I don't want to hear that ever again. Leslie said, Dose, we're going with Dose. Dose is all we're about. Forget Uno, forget anything else. Don't you dare say Trace. We are saying Dose forever. Don't you dare say Trace. <laughs> not, not one Spanish person in the meeting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, okay, hey Luke. Um, Yo, talk to us up. about Gaia Project, man. Because I've been oh, looking I'll, I'll and, and checking this here, one out here. before even our last one. I and I tell you what, and I know it looks great. Okay. I know that. Oh, hello. Eh, eh? Right. right. So, Gaia Project. Last yes. last month, for those of you who weren't here, I talked about Terra Mystica, which Terra Mystica is, is a classic, classic game, um, and it uh, basically. For those who aren't familiar with either game, Terra Mystica is a game in which you're trying to build up a civilization on a map by uh, terraforming different locations into particular 
um, terrain types based on the variable race that you play as, and there are 14 races in either game. Um, Gaia Project is a direct sequel to Terra Mystica, I want to say five, six years later, and uh, a lot of people, like myself, when I first heard about it, was like, oh, it's just Terra Mystica, but in space. And... (laughs) If there isn't a single space goblin or space elf in this game, I am thoroughly disappointed. (laughs) Well, you're in luck because there is a space Yoda-looking goblin thing in this game as one of the yellow races. Um, I'll accept it as a compromise. Yeah. No, yeah. It's it's a balance, right? Um, And when I was first looking at it, I'm like, oh, Gaia Project. It looks so ugly. Like, look at that art style. It's gross. (laughs) <laughs> and, oh, it's in space? What about my fantasy theme? What about my dwarves and my, you know, whatever? It's garbage. Trash. And, like, from a distance, I was just trash-talking the game forever. And finally, my one friend was like, yo, I've had this game on my shelf for six months. I guess we'll pull it out or whatever. And we loved it. We adored it. It is by far infinitely better than Terra Mystica in every sense of the word. Um... I've literally gone through both games, studied both of them, and it's just a better version of the game. They took all of the playtesting, basically, all of the gaming experience from Terra Mystica and went, what changes can we make to make it better? So is it primarily balance changes, or is there like actual systematic changes that make dramatic improvements? So a little bit of both. Um, In terms of uh, balancing, so Terra Mystica... For, uh, has a tier list, a very hard tier list for each of the different maps that you can play on. Like, the cultists are known as, like, the the best group to play as because of how their race functions, how they spend um, priests to dig instead of uh, other resources, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Um, and so there's a lot of, like, you play this race this one way, and that's it. You just play it in a specific manner, and you're trying to hard track it to get to that point. Right. In Gaia Project, what they did is they added a ton of setup variability to sort of try and prevent as much of that as possible. So the board is modular, for one, meaning that every time you set up the game, it's going to be a completely different board, meaning that unless you make a tier list for every single board type, which is absurd then you're not going to really have a hard tier list in that regard. Mm-hmm. How modular is it? Is it like a bunch of pieces, like hexagons that you're putting together, or is it just like quadrants? Somewhat. There's 10 different um, pieces, and they're kind of uh, diamond-shaped, but like with hexagons within that. Okay. So you move from hexagon to hexagon, and they all connect uh, a row of three, a row of four, and a row of three. Yeah, they connect kind of like Kingdom three. Builder. They connect kind of like Kingdom Builder. Okay. Yeah. Of, but they're like a hex-like shape. Yep. So um, the there's a, so I believe two of them are double-sided and the rest are single-sided, but there's a bit of variability when it comes to that. Um, then uh, how you score every game. In Terra Mystica, your scoring parameters are hard-set, Whereas in Gaia Project, you pull out two of six potential scoring for, like, the primary score stuff. So that's a huge difference in terms of each game you're scoring your 18-point big uh, point values very differently, potentially. Um, 
and then uh, the favor tokens, which are tech tokens in this game, uh, are spread out in variable manners, so they're not specifically attached to a certain color, like mm-hmm. in um, Terra Mystica. Um, but the biggest change is obviously the tech tree. The tech tree is huge in terms of how much it changes because a lot of the little wonky stuff that was previously on players' boards, like digging costs or um, the river aspect of it, like being able to move a certain number of spaces, mm-hmm. are all relegated to this tech tree. So whereas previously magic was just like, okay, I'm going up the magic track and I'm getting some magic and I'm getting some points and maybe I'll get some resources round around depending on the color I'm building. Now you have to think about, I need to dig better and I need to figure out how to get up that track so I can dig really well so that I can actually be better in the game constantly. But you're so spread out across the six different tech trees that you're constantly fighting over what you could possibly work on in order to improve your civilization. Yeah, remember how I mentioned there were sound issues? This is the segment where we were overcome by the apex of those sound issues, and so a little snippet got cut out here. And now we get back on track. We're riding through the fire and flames on Yetis. Oh my god, (laughs) dude, Dragon Force. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that yesterday and I was like, oh my god, you listen to it? I didn't think anybody else ever listened to it. I thought they all just kind of encountered it on Guitar Hero, but... (sighs) Dude... Mm -hmm. You know, when you need something epic to finish out the run, Dragon Force has your back. Yeah, you try to keep that pace up with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm out in the wilderness playing kick drums on my chest, you know, like... You ever seen that... <laughs> Have you ever seen that guy that's played that uh, that Dragon Force track on Insane Level or whatever on no. the Guitar Hero? It's actually, oh, yeah, pretty, it's actually pretty nuts, like... Terrifying. Terrifying. I, Speaking I, of Terra, we're going yeah. back to terraforming <laughs> out in space. Beautiful. Um, you know, Perfect segue. So 10 out of 10. That tech tree. Thank you. That tech tree, right? That's like, yeah. I noticed when I was looking at it, it was like terraforming, navigation, AI. So how, does those, how do those kind of affect the game? Okay. So there are six different trees, right? Going from left to right, the first one is digging, which... Um, like digging in uh, Terra Mystica, you can level that up to make it more cost-effective to terraform different locations. Um, you terraform different colored planets in the same way as you might terraform different colored tiles in Terra Mystica. But as you move up the tree, a location will either improve the stat that that thing does for you, or it will give you an instant buff. Okay. So for instance, the first level on that tree immediately gives you two workers which is really nice Mm -hmm. um, to sort of boost the production of that specific resource. Um, It's doing the thing again. Give me one second. Let me see if I unplug it and replug it. What happens? Yeah. The Yeti's like... (laughs) (laughs) That sounds more like a whale. Are you Dory? It sounds like uh, two dolphins. I was watching Family Guy the other day, and they were talking about these two dolphins, and they were like talking all jive and stuff and i was like ah family guy can y'all hear me yeah all right cool all right so the first tree is that the second tree is movement like the river movement because you're in space so you got to be able to hop (laughs) 
from planet to planet. I hope your explanation of the game, whenever you're teaching anyone, is exactly that. It's like, yeah, uh, you know, so this is just like the river movement, except in space. <laughs> this is just like the tech tree, except in space. Just deal with it. Come on. How, how much more explanation yeah. do you need? It's just right. like the magic, except in space. Come on. <laughs> I, I keep calling things by the wrong thing whenever I play this game. Like, uh, it's... The the workers are now called ore, and I'm like, they're not ore. They're workers. They are working for me and doing what I need them to do. Or apparently uh, in Chris's case, they're just slaves. slaves. Right, right, obviously. Um, or like power, I constantly call magic all the time. What the heck? Why is it doing this? Why do you do this to me? Uh, let's see. Then the third tree is obtaining a specific kind of green resource, which is new to the game. They call them like TMIs or something like that, which is just like a nonsense abbreviation for the resource. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but basically what it does is that um, it allows you to take a new type of action on the board. You know how there's all of those magic actions on the board that you're fighting over in Terra Mystica? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, you can spend these to do specific actions like that that are actually endgame scoring. Mm -hmm. So you can spend two mm -hmm. of these cubes to score just a set number of points based on the locations you've terraformed. Um, or you can reactivate one of your civilizations, one of your uh, settlements or whatever you want to call them. Uh, for the points and for the resources that that provides. Um, so there's one tree that's solely devoted to just obtaining more of that resource. Um, the, fourth, the fourth track is for Gaia Projects, you know, name drop. Um, there's a whole new mechanic about just doing these Gaia Projects, which is the most convoluted part of the game. And honestly, the part of the game I try my hardest to avoid every time I play it. Okay, that's always a good sign when there's something that you're actively trying to avoid engaging in. That's so, actually the title of the game itself. Yeah, that, that is <laughs> my one like huge gripe with the game. This is by far my favorite game currently in existence. Like, wow. Easily hands down my favorite game. Period, end of story. There is no competition right now for my attention. But High the praise. guy... The, the Gaia Project aspect of the game is really convoluted and obnoxious. And unless you're playing a race that is specifically like, we benefit from Gaia Projecting, then it's like, <laughs> I, I don't, don't enjoy doing a thing. Um, but there are definitely those instances where that's useful. Um, and then there's two trees for just gathering resources. If you go up that tree, you're going to get more resources each round, whether it be research for the one or money, workers, and magic movement for the other. Magic movement is also a good name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Rock and roll. Um, that's the last big change, honestly, to the game. So in Terra Mystica, you have your magic bowls, which work in very interesting ways, but when you use them... Once they're spent, they're done. Like, if you burn any magic, they're gone forever. So, aside from thematic purposes, is there any reason that you could 
foresee ever needing to play Terra Mystica again? No, absolutely not. I'm selling my copy. It's wow. not worth holding on to. Yeah, and I especially mean, after that, that collection. Yeah, after that you know? review of the expansion that you gave last time, which was pretty hanky, then I I think this uh this is probably a good way to go. But I'm I'm at least happy for you because Terra Mystica wasn't exactly like a, a game I completely adored, like I had fun with it. So I don't know that this is really going to be my jam, but I know how much people love Terra Mystica and how it, it's almost like, you know, the tier list that you were talking about. The, I, I've seen so few games where people get so crazy about like a tournament scene and a prescribed strategic way to playing. It's almost like listening to people talk about Super Smash Brothers, where they're like, only Final Destination, no items, here's the tier list. If you're anyone <laughs> other than Falco or Jigglypuff, you're out of here. Well, maybe not Jigglypuff, but you, you know what I'm talking about. Like, right, people right, are right, very absolutely. passionate about Terra Mystica, and this makes me happy that maybe there's a improvement on the game that makes it a little bit more versatile and viable for more factions to compete, and also... Hopefully, it's a game that when I do get a chance to play it with people who are so passionate, such as yourself, then maybe I'm going to get a little bit more enjoyment out of it. Not that I hated the first one. It was just... Sure. Ultimately, it wasn't my thing. Terra Mystica was one of our first games. And so, like, uh, first of all, we all need to get a game of this or Terra Mystica going. Because I definitely... We definitely got to play one of those. But, um... I kind of like how it looks like on that that uh, with those six those six tracks. It kind of took some of that stuff that was on your own player board, uh, as yep, far as absolutely. the update grading stuff, and kind of put it more centralized so that everybody kind of can mix it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I like that, man. I'm so I'm oh, definitely this is definitely on my radar. Yeah, it's definitely way more elegant in terms of that, in terms of how it functions, and it's just a lot more engaging and interesting. Um, there's so much more. Um, I think variety game to game because of the modular maps, tokens, all of that stuff. So every game feels new. Every game feels like a new puzzle as opposed to, oh, I'm on this map. Um, I'm the cultist, so I win, you know? <laughs> or I'm the nomads. I'm always going to put it on this spot and just build from this same spot. Actually, exactly. you know, there, were some, there were some things we had to do on Terra Mystica to kind of, you know, uh, spice it up a little bit. Like one of our requirements when we were playing was you have to put your starting place next to somebody because everybody was just trying to like build out on their own sections and then pay high costs for everything. And then it was like, okay, well now we can build next to each other and things half. And it just seemed like, okay, you're either one or the other. So when we like kind of made it a requirement, it really seemed like things were getting mixed up a little bit more and people were even like, you know, trying to make more deals as far as like, I'll let you stay here. If you don't want to pay you this for this. And so that was kind of, that was kind of cool. So both games, uh, uh, both games I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in too. Of course, Terra Mystica because I've been playing, but Jack, you playing uh, anything else? Anything else you want to share with us? Uh, The only other thing that I wanted to mention that I put on my list here was uh, Dragon Dice, which is a game that has been around forever um, since 1995, in fact, and it is it is an archaic game and it is not modern (laughs) in any way, shape, or form. Like if someone picks this up today and expects something like what's kind of like a modern developed game. It it is not that. 
And unlike games like Magic the Gathering and, um, I don't know, Warhammer that have really evolved with the times, this still feels in a lot of ways like it's back in 1995. That said, um, as part of uh, me doing the Cardboard Herald, I, I, I found an opportunity to like meet up with the guys who have kept this game alive because it was originally a TSR thing. And then this, they were going to get rid of it. Like they were actually going to incinerate all the dice, disposing of all the dice uh, when wizards of the coast bought it. And they were like, you know what? We're, we're done with this. And literally they shipped it on pallets overseas. So that way they could dispose of it because apparently the, the materials that it was made of couldn't be disposed of in an mm-hmm. affordable way here in the US or something and this this group of fans like bought in to be like no we're going to pitch to Wizards of the Coast who now owns TSR can we buy this from you and they did which is like the only time where a company has actually acquired a property from Wizards of the Coast I believe like other companies have been licensed uh, like properties, but like as part of this, SFR, to everyone's knowledge, is the only company outside of Wizards of the Coast slash Hasbro that can use the term beholder because that's like a, a trademarked um, right. TSR yeah. monster, right? You know, but there was a beholder monster within Dragon Dice, and because they acquired the 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 rights to it or or like permanently acquired the rights to it they bought it they can use this trademark monster in anything that they produce um that's specifically dragon dice they couldn't create a new game with it in it but um anyway long story short they saved the game years ago and they kept it alive meanwhile little jack eddie uh at age of uh, i don't know i guess 1995 so uh, to give a specific date that would put me at nine years old in Eagle River, Alaska. So Chris can appreciate this. Was going to the Eagle River Bosco's location and Mo Marin, a giant Chilean guy who managed the the store, took pity on poor chunky little Jack Eddie who was just fawning over these dice, thinking they were the coolest things in the world, and he would cut me discounts sorry john weddleton if you're listening yeah mo was (laughs) mo was slipping me some dragon dice probably just to move product that he couldn't move otherwise um and this is a store that i eventually worked at that chris worked at that um chris and i actually started our friendship at when i was probably like 16 and chris was slightly older and i was like whoa this dude is like super cool and into anime i need to hang out with him um, and that was the beginning of like 20. That was so long ago. Yeah, wow. it, it was ages ago. Uh, and then uh, anyway, um, through the Cardboard Herald, I got a chance to talk with these guys and just learn the history of Dragon Dice. And then I did a review of it. And then <laughs> out of my review, which oddly was like one of the most viewed videos that I have, <laughs> it, 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 because there's so many people that have like this weird affection for dragon dice in the same way that I did, or it's a curiosity to a lot of people, or it's, it's appealing to a small, but very dedicated fan base. And my review 
commented on that nostalgia and how a lot of it needs to kind of evolve, not just the gameplay itself, but the distribution model. It has like blind packs like you're still buying and you you are buying a pack that is specifically affiliated with the race that you want so you're buying a feral pack or a fire walker pack or swamp stalkers whatever but you're still getting random pulls within that um you you get a set amount just like magic you get a set amount of commons uncommons rares that kind of thing but still you know if you're trying to acquire an army at this point in 2018, typically people are used to saying, I want the LCG model at, at, at least, so that way I can pick specifically what I want and I don't have to hunt for rares out of yeah. blind drops. But anyway, um, the company decided to come out with these new rules, these fourth edition rules, 4.0, that made the game more aggressive and more accessible and did some really smart streamlining things. And uh, they approached me because I had been doing these videos and I'm, I guess, the only one doing Dragon Dice videos online at this point, or the, <laughs> there may have been some other videos of like how to plays in the past, but they were very much like, First, you will take your dice, you will pick them up in your hand, and then <laughs> proceed to roll them. And, and uh, very, very dry stuff. Um, and they wow. were like, hey, we're trying to, you know, release these new rules, and we're going to do a Kickstarter to reprint a particular race of dice. And we'd like it if you guys um, would do the official how to play video. Uh, so it it was sponsored, I should say that right up, um, yeah. but it, it it was, to me, the honor of actually doing something for this game that I have this affection for, like this huge affection for, was unbelievable. Like, if I stopped doing the Cardboard Herald right after doing this podcast, I would feel so accomplished in new ways that I, I hadn't already. I mean, the, there's so many incredible opportunities that have been presented to me, let alone hanging out with you guys, but to to have some sort of relic on the internet that's like the official how to play of this game from 1995, that is something that I got to do. It was just like wild. And so I've been playing as a byproduct of that lots of Dragon Dice in order to you know, get the video and, and to, you know, uh, prepare for all of this and answering mm -hmm. some, some questions and also just being like, dude, Dragon Dice. Yeah, I love this stuff. So that that's the other main game that's been kind of occupying my my mind frame for about the last month and a half or so. And that's really neat. You know, you get to kind of leave your own little unique stamp on the world, you know? Yeah. Especially with something like that being so kind of close to you. Yeah, totally. Uh, Luke, how about you? You got one more? Um, I believe that I do if I look at the – yeah, so I've been playing Adrenaline recently. Um, Adrenaline a card is a game, game. Right? A little card game, right? No, no, no. That's a big box uh, CGE game, like a pretty hefty box, uh, about the same size as something like Cyclades. Adrenaline. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, oh, that's that's the one that that's like mirroring arena shooters from you know like the the late '90s, early 2000s, right? Yep. 
Yeah, okay, absolutely. yeah, totally. It's like Quake, the board game. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> yeah, a game yeah, that absolutely. kind of like came and went and had a huge burst of like interest, and then all of a sudden everyone was like, nah, what what, what game is that? Yeah, that, that game is cool. I've I played it a couple times. I, I had a friend who was exactly what you're describing. Like, he went to a convention, and he was like, dude, I got this game Adrenaline. Everyone is so amped up about it, which kind of speaks to the name, I guess. Uh, and he was oh, yeah. so passionate about <laughs> it for, like, a hot minute, maybe like a month. He wanted to play it nonstop. And there's reasons why we didn't continue playing it primarily he's a helicopter pilot and then took a job in the um in uh in the gulf of mexico so he kind of left shortly after that but in my communication with him since then he's brought up a lot of board games he hasn't mentioned adrenaline once so uh ryan what's up with your copy of adrenaline send it to me if you're not playing it anymore so (laughs) what's going on with adrenaline luke so basically Adrenaline, like the theme of the game makes you think it's like, oh, this is just a a Marathrash kind of game. You know, something where there's a bunch of dudes on a map and you're fighting over different things. And it's going to be very like you're rolling dice and you're you're just shooting people. But it's actually like this really intellectual, almost uh, area control resource management game. (laughs) Where, um, based on your spawn point, you're picking up different weapons and trying to pick up ammo for those weapons. And then whenever you shoot someone, that uh, weapon needs to be reloaded, so you have to have the right uh, ammunition to reload your gun. And you're sort of trying to collect a group of guns that all work together. And the guns are crazy. They're, like, ridiculous. Like, there's the rift gun that creates a rift in space that drags other players into that spot. Or, um, like, a samurai sword that you can, like, attack one person and then attack another person one space away if you have the ammunition to do it. And it's just a really, like, unique style of game that... um, I, I've been having a blast with it, honestly. Like, it's just stupid fun. And it's smart in what it does, but it's just crazy fun to play it. Right. And the aesthetics are are very cool. Like, it actually looks like it, a HUD. You know, your, your tableau is like a yeah, HUD yeah. from <laughs> one of these old arena games. Like, aren't the, if I recall, like the, the point system where you're building up points, isn't it like skulls or something? They're, they're headshots. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. It, it's crazy, but it, it does work. And there is an elegance to the game. I, I recall. Okay. Um, and, and it's not like a dudes on the map as in everyone controls many units. You have your one character and you're, um, you're going through like corridors in a arena style map. Think like unreal tournament or, or quake or even like doom death match, that type of stuff. Absolutely. And I'm looking at pictures of it too. The, the cards with the weapons on it are pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. Like, there's the one weapon that's really neat called Thor. And what Thor does is you attack someone within line of sight. And then you can pay an extra ammo to uh, basically chain react onto a person in that person's line of sight. And you can do that a third time. So you're just, like, zipping around this damage, like, I zap you, which zaps you, which zaps you all the way over on the other side of the map. Like, really interesting sort of unique 
um, abilities and stuff like that that just makes the game so engaging to uh, interact with, uh, so replayable in terms of like, now I have this completely different set of weapons this game, how do I make this combination work, you know? Yeah, that looks awesome. Actually, oh, yeah. so the I see that there's a top version of the card or a top part of the card and the bottom part of the card. What's the difference in those? Uh, okay, well, so, some cards are actually have one thing on them. So yep. how about these cards? So basically, uh, each weapon will have uh, either multiple settings or um, optional improvements to utilize. Okay. Cool. You're game. basically going to choose which style of gun you're using. So for instance, the shotgun has two different settings. One of them is if you are in the same space as that player, you just shoot them for uh, two damage and you knock them back a space, I think. Whereas um, the other uh, option is if they're one space away, you shoot them and it does three damage straight up. The best way that I can describe the game for any comic book fans out there is okay. like if Rob Liefeld designed a game and it was the first game he ever designed, but it happened to be good. That that's what this game would be. It is the most like brotastic, like adrenaline. You know, it's like oh, everyone's oh, going yeah. to have big guns and it's going to be explosions everywhere and everyone's going to be super like muscly and awesome and it's going to be so rad. Like rad is the core design concept for this game. I, I imagine they put onto the whiteboard rad and they were like anything that's rad goes in the game. Anything that's not rad does not go in the game. <laughs> but again, you know, it has that that elegance to it that allows you to appreciate it on a level that you don't have to be fully brotastic in order to enjoy oh, yeah. it, which is, which is super cool. Um, I, I do dig the game. I, I'd love to get a chance to play it again. Yeah, it's a surprisingly thoughtful game, and they're actually going to be releasing an expansion for it very shortly. Um, that's going to add an extra player, uh, team mode, and each character is now going to have their own unique properties. Oh, okay. Some asymmetry. I like it. Yeah, kind of like the uh, power-up of King of Tokyo. Oh, yeah. That, the As far as I'm concerned, that's a mandatory expansion. So, like, Adrenaline is just going to keep getting better in my eyes moving forward, so I'm super pumped. That's fantastic. I'm looking at all kinds of artwork, too, and, uh, man, if you like big sci-fi art... Oh, yeah. Man, that's, that's good stuff. So, um, what else you guys got going on? What are you doing that's not necessarily on the table, huh? Well... That's a good question. I don't right? have an answer for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Luke is purely on the table. He is bonded with the table. Like, if you've seen The Fly... <laughs> Where, you know, he, like, goes through, or the fly, too, where, like, the security guard goes through with the dog and the portal thing, and then it's, like, the puddle of dog person thing that's, like, kill me! Uh, you know, I, I imagine that's what happened with Luke. He is the table now with Gaia Project mixed in. Like, oh, yeah. You get a little more niche when you go fly, too. But... Hey, hey! <laughs> the fly, too, was an important part of my childhood, Okay. <laughs> Ironically enough, one of the first like sex scenes I remember from a movie was Fly Two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh God! Was that David Cronenberg as well? Like I can't remember wh who exactly did that, but it, it was much more vivid in my memory. Maybe because I saw it before I saw The Fly. I can't remember. My dad certainly did not 
shield me from any content whatsoever but yeah the 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 dog mixing with security guard if i'm recalling what happened <laughs> it is one of the most horrifying body horror things i have ever seen and has been burned into my memory since like the age of five so thanks dad uh, <laughs> <laughs> just the crazy things that you'll remember from when you were a kid like when i was watching ghostbusters as a kid i was horrified by one scene i had super nightmares about it all the time and it's just really weird to think like what sticks with you not like the the happy memories or like you know mm -hmm. what you did with your dad when you were five years old it's that awful like horrifying scarring scene that's left you you know with all these crazy you know uh thoughts or ticks or whatever right yeah there almost no as if Dana, kids can get traumatized yeah, only zool <laughs> I don't know. I, I think uh, of the the moment where, you know, you get the unzipping of pa pants and then like cross-eyed thing that that's to me one of the most vivid memories of like, I don't know what's going on here, but something funny is going on at like five years old again with Ghostbusters. What a crazy movie Ghostbusters was. Yeah, if you rewatch it as an adult, you realize like, hey, uh, there's a lot of adult content in here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that, that's yeah. also, I mean, that's a whole separate like channel we could go down is right. that right. when we were kids, there were so many things that were monetized and and expected that kids would be aware of that was really explicitly adult content. Like I had Terminator toys. I had RoboCop toys. Right. Have right. you seen RoboCop <laughs> one? <laughs> what was it like? Uh, I can't even remember the character's name. It's like, can, can you fly, Donnie, or whatever that is? Like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> RoboCop one is horrifying, and yet there were action figures for that thing. I mean, at 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 a distance, you might look at RoboCop and be like, oh yeah, this is something that is completely for a child's imagination. But that's like one step away from getting like a pinhead hellraiser toy meant for <laughs> like six year olds it is insane the uh, amount of stuff that it was just expected that oh yeah kids they would totally be into this robocop i mean he totally gets brutally murdered in it in some of the most graphic scenes that have ever happened in an r-rated movie yeah kids will love it yeah, we mentioned those memorable movie scenes. Actually, one of mine's from RoboCop, where that dude takes the splash and the toxic yeah. waste, and then the car just exactly. basically <laughs> runs him over into like liquid. Yeah, like, liquefies, dude. Oh, That's yeah. when I was like, "Wow, what yeah. am I watching here?" Exactly, and that prepared us for anime forever. You know, that's why Neon Genesis Evangelion <laughs> was like, "Oh yeah, this is comforting, like my childhood." Which. RoboCop's anniversary was actually like what yesterday or the day before or something. Oh, was it? Yeah, something like that. Oh, yeah. Man, what what a what a legacy! What a legacy, Peter Weller. Um. Anyway, to answer your question, uh, for me, the <laughs> <laughs> Switch gaming. Uh, yeah. I, I've been playing a lot of Nintendo Switch. Just like. I, I don't play much video games anymore, mainly because I got board games in my spare time, and they're kind of like my 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 go to for stress relief. And oh, yeah. the cardboard herald takes over almost 
all other free time. So I'm either doing board games or talking about board games, that kind of stuff. But the Switch is really nice because I can play it right before going to bed or I can sneak it in while like my, you know, I'm hanging out with my kid and he wants to watch some cartoons, which are frankly awful because he doesn't watch cool things like RoboCop yet. But (laughs) (laughs) he's got like a year or two. I mean, he's only three right now. So, you know, five years old, he can probably handle RoboCop. Um, no, I'm, I'm much more vigilant about <laughs> what he watches compared to what my dad let me watch. Um, but frankly, most of the things he watches are awful. So I can play the Switch while, you know, he's watching Blippy or something. And I'm like throwing up on the inside <laughs> of my mouth. Um, and so I've been obsessing over Hollow Knight and then to a degree um, Octopath, Octopath. Oct- Octopath Traveler, which is all right. I mean, it, it's good. It's a throwback to <laughs> RPGs what, from the what past. A, what a pitch, Octopath Traveler. It's all right. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sold. The yeah. thing is, is that the, there's such a starvation for like classic JRPGs. You know, the Japanese role playing games like um, you know the Final Fantasies and Chrono Triggers and Super Mario RPGs, the Secret of Mana. The, this era of gaming has been so important to so many people, and it is still a pretty viable method of creating games at a, a fairly low budget. I mean, there there mm-hmm. have been some attempts to kind of revitalize this, like um, uh, coming to mind Undertale. Isn't exactly that type of thing, but it's a modern sure. take on um, this this older style of gameplay. And there's such a starvation for it that people are holding this as like a return to form for Square, and yet it's completely innovative, which it is innovative. But on the other hand, like the story is kind of absolute garbage and super shallow, and I'm trying to look at it objectively and not as like rose-tinted glasses when I look at things like Final Fantasy 3 or 6 or whatever numbering system you want to use. Um But, you know, you were limited on dialogue, and there is way more room for dialogue and voice acting in this, but there's no characterization, like, everyone is really, really stiff, there's no character interaction that is people observing other people's behavior and commenting on it, uh, creating interesting interpersonal relationships between your teammates, and, and, like, the... the overall stories because it's really like eight stories for the eight different characters have no real semblance of interaction. And my favorite games were the games that were kind of soap opera, you know, like same thing that got me into X-Men, you know, as a kid was I, I didn't care so much about the action that was important, but it was more so about the characters relationships and, not only are the characters super one-dimensional in this and not really interesting from like a, a writing perspective at all, but also they don't really have interaction. So there's not really a lot of room for them to evolve as characters. And that mm-hmm. is kind of disappointing. But gameplay-wise, this is like strategically one of the best role-playing games I've ever played, period, and is super awesome. So I'm happy that this is a sign of something that could potentially come or develop into 
better written games in the future, hopefully. Um, so I, I'm enjoying it. I'm going to see it through, and I, I, I'm glad that it exists. I'm just a little disappointed by the shallowness of the story. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> see, I'm in full dad mode, and I'm also reflecting on things in my past. So, you know, I'm in my 30s now, so it's my job to be like... You know, they just don't understand what was special about the music of my time. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got to like a game, though. Like, uh, that's when you find something that has like a, a system or a like I call it stat crushing. And it's like, oh, and the rest of the game around, it's just kind of like uh, you just kind of make a mental note and you hope you see that somewhere else for, or in or in their next game, maybe uh, executed better, you know, stuff like that. So Yeah, yeah, for sure. Me, I, all my stuff's been packed up and is in transit and is going to be three weeks behind. So we're sleeping on the floor and everything, but um, got the internet hooked up and I've just been watching stuff like before bed, like uh, Next Generation and Luke Cage has been our kind of go-tos. Um, we were trying to finish watching The Next Generation before we left Alaska, but we, we didn't get a chance to. But um, man, there's some really good stuff and some really weird stuff. Yeah, um, TNG is a crazy show. Um, when when the when the giant uh, alien attached itself to the Enterprise and they're making yeah. all the breastfeeding references. Yeah, and then Picard is like, "Congratulations, you've successfully weaned the alien." I was like, <laughs> "What?" And there's credits, and I'm like, "What the what?" And then some of the. So, yeah, I got some big issues with the counselor, and apparently I'm, like, not the only one because it's just, like, you just got the eye candy there for the first four seasons, and she outranks everybody. Why? Yeah. I don't I, know. And then some of her weird floating through space episodes where she's just wondering the whole episode. Yeah. Ah, but some of the mind-bending stuff with, like, you know, parallel universes and different dimensions and, and, you know, like, that's not the real Picard. That's not the real Enterprise, man. Some of that stuff was cool i thought man to capture some of that stuff in like a uh, 50 minutes or whatever an episode was yeah and then of course it reinvigorated uh me and my wife's love for picard and Riker. oh yeah totally so, and like the I Riker mean... sitting down on the chair backwards and everything you know <laughs> crossing his leg like saddling on it um dude, <laughs> you know, yeah <laughs> I, I love that show but you know how crazy is it like you know luke i don't know if you care at all about star trek do you are you a trekkie a trekker? Not particularly. I've uh, dated some Trekkies, but I myself don't have any affinity towards it oh, personally. Uh, okay, okay. Well, well you're open-minded. <laughs> open-minded. Yeah, <absolutely. laughs> Everyone's allowed their um, their choices. Frivolities. Whether they be good or bad, whatever. <laughs> We're uh, not judging, not at yeah. all. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we don't judge yeah, here yeah. at the Cardboard well, Herald. How crazy is it that the first episode of The Next Generation was a Q episode? Oh, like, right? <laughs> it's just, like, it wasn't until I went back and watched it, because I think I watched it all out of order, because it's not a, a sequential show. You know, it's, it's serials. You know, every episode may have information that's contextualized by the past, but is its own standalone thing for the most part. And, like, the first episode they, they come out with is like Q is holding humanity on trial and you have no con 
context for any of this kind of stuff. And they're like, this is how we're bringing Star Trek back. And I was like, whoa, man, way way to start out with the most wild out there stuff first. And... That first season is kind of terrible in most yeah. regards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like Picard is like, I hate children. Wesley Crusher. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, whoa, this is this is a weird show. Um, and the other thing that strikes me about it, because I, too, have been watching some TNG lately, is that <laughs> in today's political climate where everyone is getting... Um, you know, bent out of shape for all sorts of reasons, you know, hammering at the other side. And in particular, you know, on the internet, in like nerdy forums, even people are getting called out for like, oh, a bunch of SJW social justice warriors, or, you know, a bunch of leftist, you know, whining tears and everything. (laughs) How wild is it that like one of the most popular shows on television for years was a show that like, there was a dangerous situation, and the first thing they did was, well, let's go to the meeting room and actually talk about a diplomatic solution for this. We need to ensure that we are being culturally empathic to this other race, and we don't right. fully understand their methods of, of you know operating, but we have to be able to be sensitive to them. Like, that is the most social justice warrior yeah. liberal show that I can imagine. Like, it, it, it is... It is so PC and not PC in a lot of regards, but right. but I can't imagine anything like TNG surviving in today's climate because it would just be lambasted for being so completely liberal and idealistic uh, in ways that you know, are like anti-gun, anti-war, anti Mm -hmm. so many things, but not even in like a a biting way that is like compelling, like in a like soft cuddly way in a lot of regards. And so much of the show is just like speeches about how humanity can be better than this. That's like 30% of the next generation. (laughs) Um, And I love it. Ending in the meeting room. Yeah, exactly. There were shows that ended in the meeting room or there were times where they're getting bombed on and like they're getting attacked and the captain's like suggestions. (laughs) Really? And and to comment on Troy, who I love Troy. And if, if anyone's interested in this, you know, I've talked about the podcast fictional females before Uh, it's, hosted by two of my good friends from middle and high school um, who are awesome. They, they every week <laughs> tackle a different female from fiction and talk about, you know, the cultural impact, what's, mm-hmm. what's been relevant to them, their own interest in it. And uh, in really entertaining ways, but their episode sure. on Troy is one of my favorite episodes period because they, really talk about how frustrating and awesome of a character she is in some regards. Like, you know, she, she was actually part of the command structure on the enterprise and she was right there, but also she is at times the most worthless character. It's like, you know, (laughs) like Picard turns to her and is like, 
Troy, you know, what are you, what's your read on this person who just angrily yelled at us for two minutes? And she'll be like, I'm sensing that he's angry. It's yeah. like, yeah, you're <laughs> sensing that, Troy? You're, you're sensing <laughs> that they're angry? Uh, everyone <laughs> sense that. Please have some sort of better use for the rest of the Enterprise. <laughs> I guess that was from my, my issue was just some of that execution, though, because I actually like the fact – I mean, I've been in social work, mental health working with counselors and clinicians for almost the last 20 years. And I get her character. I love that as part of the command structure. And I, and the stuff that she's spitting is very basic, obviously, so that the casual viewer can yeah. uh, like understand some of these concepts that can help you access that next level of, of, of thinking and processing and stuff. So I'm not saying that the position is cool. It's just like sometimes I was watching her and I was like, oh, my gosh. But... On that other, totally. on that other, uh, on that other angle you were talking about, I actually worked with a clinician that pushed me like that. She was like, "Oh, you're going to let people, you know?" I'd be like, "Oh man, a bunch of cracker jacks are working today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call in and get somebody else to work and just have an easy day." Oh, you're going to let them control your day? You're going to let someone? Why would you? And you know, and it's like, "Hey, wait a minute, you questioning why I do things?" And then I'm like thinking to myself, I start reflecting on myself, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, she's right." And so, like, I really appreciated that from yeah. the character. But, boy, there was just some, like, weird execution sometimes. And then all of a sudden she's wearing the, the Starfleet gear and the, the pips on, on the collar now. And it's like, where were your pips on the, on the, uh, on the low cut, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, like, I, I, I do love her character. And I, I love that it was an attempt to bring that element. And, and again, it, it's that real kind of touchy-feely element that TNG has, but it, it it did feel like a disservice to her at times how she was utilized to essentially just regurgitate these are my, my feelings that are so surface level and superficial. Um, but the, the character itself and the idea of a counselor on... A, on a ship is so cool that it allows you to explore so many different elements that right. you wouldn't normally get. And I, I guess what I can say is that it, it felt like for as cool of an actress as she is, most of the meaty discussion stuff that that is really impactful, especially during like the first two or three seasons, was all handed to Beverly Crusher. You know, and I love Gates McFadden as well, but she's the one who really got to dissect and analyze mm -hmm. Picard and some of the other characters and have these thought provoking moments when that maybe would have made the counselor a much more integral part of the the story fabric of the show, not just like in in name, but also in actuality, you know, and so that was one of the most frustrating things about the rewatch to me is that there's such potential both through actress, through, through position, through interesting concept that wasn't always executed well. Um, but she does have some incredible episodes that are, are worth. I, I agree uh, with you there too. And, and don't get me started but, about the doctor. Sometimes I'm, I'm like, stop trying to hang with Patrick Stewart. Stop trying to hang with Patrick Stewart. <laughs> oh, just do not, do not, do not take down Beverly Crusher. Uh, the Bay. Totally. You know, before all else, Beverly Crusher, 
I don't care that she's a widow. I don't care that she has a, a Wesley Crusher son that you would have to put up with. You know, I I just want to hang out with Gates McFadden. She seems like the coolest person. Do you know that she did like puppet choreography for Labyrinth? Like she she's a choreographer. That that's like yeah, her gig. And, and I did know that. In fact, uh, when she's chore doing choreography work, uh, she goes by her real name, Cheryl. Did you know that? I didn't. Cheryl Ooh. McFadden. Gates is her middle name that she uses when she's playing acting roles. Well, that's awesome. Okay, make some notes here. Luke is rolling his eyes in the background like, oh my god, take me away from the... <laughs> Luke is dying. The The table is running out of oxygen, truly saying, kill me. I mean, I went and made a sandwich, uh, doing some push-ups. It's been a real interesting, uh, real interesting topic we got here. All right. Well, <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, we got a, we got, we got some. Um, let's let's finish up and, and grind this out with some of our news and fun stuff. I want to share that when I moved to Oregon, we were trying to find a game store, and man, it was looking bleak because every game store was very Warhammer-ish. I will say, man, some of the environments and some of the models. Uh, wow, like I guess everybody's just doing I, the that PAX Unplugged uh, convention. We saw some amazing stuff too, and there was like oh, that yeah, kind absolutely. of that kind of caliber stuff was at at some of these places. But the Game Depot in Mesa, Arizona, it's about 25 minutes from me. You know, everything's like a shot on the highway when you're down here. Man, I mean, I, they had. Clans of Caledonia, Robinson Crusoe, the Jamaica expansion, Marco Polo, both Istanbul expansions, Concordia expansion. You guys remember, you mentioned Cyclades, Flam Rouge. And I was like, man, I just wish I had like 600 bucks right now. The Game um, Depot. All games, all games that were just have been on my radar that, you know, I've looked for online, didn't like the price, didn't see it at my local shop in Anchorage over at Bosco. So I was just like, oh, you know, I'll keep a mental note. And then we stumble into this game, all in this game store, all games. And uh, so it was pretty nice to see those. I don't see them flying off the show. So it's good to know that uh, I got access to games. That was ironically, that was one of our biggest worries when. <laughs> when moving here <laughs> do they have space to play i i know that you typically play at home but does it seem like there's a tables there or anything that if they you totally, wanted to they totally did it's like every spot here has mad table space that's basically the size of it's like half of it they're big buildings and like half of it is the games and the other half is just mad tables in fact people some people were just sitting by themselves um it's really good to see it was a it was a lot more um active here than kind of in in anchorage even though i mean i could have i mean i guess i could have researched it more back in anchorage but like here i felt like man it's just kind of punching you in the face come play come play come play and i was like hey okay all right so well i think it's part of the the survival of game stores at this point is you got to make sure that people are hanging out in the store because they're more likely to do an impulse buy of a game and not buy it on amazon to get it you know like a week later, or Cool Stuff Inc. or whatever, Miniature Market. I, I always say Amazon because CSI and Miniature Market don't have their free shipping to Alaska. So, you know what? Screw them. <laughs> Amazon is the way that I can get games here in Juneau. Uh, but, you know, if I had a friendly local game store that encouraged hanging out and playing and had the selection, then I could very easily see some buddies saying, hey, let's meet up at the store and I think they got Clans of Caledonia there. We can just pick up a copy and just play for the night. 
that seems like an awesome experience. And I hear you about the, um, you know, getting people to impulse buy because that was totally the vibe in this place. And I'm just thinking you had one, two, three, four, you had five of the expansions that I was looking for. And I'm just like, I mean, talk about, I was ready to, you know, drain my bank. But, you know, of course I got my wife in my ear talking about responsibilities. <laughs> so I got to, you got a baby, you know, got to take care of family, old kid, new place, just put all our resources into moving on to state six, just did a six day road trip. Let's go spend $600 on games. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I, that sounds completely reasonable. I don't, I don't see the issue. I love it. I love you guys. <laughs> Luke, what do you what do you got going on? What's some news and some fun info you can share with us, bud? Oh gosh. Well, next month the last scythe expansion is coming out, which I'm super pumped about. Yeah, it seems really cool. Like I I haven't dived too deep into exactly what's in there. It gives like a campaign to scythe, yeah. right? So basically what it is is you've got an eight game campaign that you're gonna get to play through. Uh, which are going to have various different, you know, twists and turns and narrative and whatnot, which is fine. I don't really care too much about the campaign. Right. What I do care about is the 11 modules that will be coming out of that campaign. Because mm -hmm. yeah. as you play the game, you're going to be getting different miniatures, tokens, tiles, whatever. There's some custom dice in there somewhere. And each of those things are going to be able to be plugged into a typical game of Scythe as modules to use at your discretion, basically. Oh. So I, I, I go back and forth on this module thing because on one hand, it's really cool to have all this content that you can choose to interact with or not, depending on the like flavor of the day type of thing. You know, like, sure. oh, I'm enjoying yeah. this. But on the other hand, let's say, you know, you're a typical hardcore gamer in the way that we are where we're playing lots of games with regularity and sure. we have collections mm -hmm. and maybe scythe is going to hit your table the first year you own it maybe 10 to 15 times if you're really passionate about it maybe more maybe a little bit less and then years after that you're probably going to have it you know every now and then but there's other games that you want to play and experience and Learning a game isn't nearly as fun to me as like familiarity with something and really being able to to interact in in intentional ways. Oh yeah, and, absolutely. And so modular expansions kind of create this weird situation where it's like I'm playing a new game every time I'm playing that module, and I don't get to get to the point of familiarity where I am really interacting on the game than the level that I want or it's been so long since I've had this part of the module that it, I have to re-familiarize with myself with it mm -hmm. so for the most part I'm kind of like an all-or-nothing gamer I, I want an expansion where I can incorporate everything or if it's modular I'm using almost everything and just taking out one element that I don't think is good for the current scenario maybe it's too complex or maybe it's something that changes the game into a style that you know uh, some buddies might not enjoy that type of gaming that type of thing mm -hmm. yeah I, I don't know where do, where do you guys fall on the modular thing definitely the last one that you said where i just i like to make the best of i plug in the stuff that i like and i leave out the stuff that i don't and this is the way that i play it so that now every time i hit the table it's like you said you develop that rapport overall so it's like you're kind of playing what what you're what you kind of view as the most optimized absolutely ver version of the game for yourself. Okay, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Me and my wife kind of go back and forth on this one because I'm kind of like with you, Luke, as far as optimizing the game. My wife's a little bit more simpler. Her whole thing is kind of, I guess, almost using the expansions for what they were created for. She likes to jack, like you're talking about, exhaust all of the basic parameters of the game. And then when she starts getting bored with it, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, let's try these. That's That was one of her biggest swings when I was about to drop all that money at the Game Depot. She was like, well, think about you know, how often you would be playing these and some of these games that you still want to get under your belt a little bit more. And I was like, you know what? Eh, she's got a good point because there's some things that I still want to open up on some of these games, especially like Concordia. And, you know, you want to find out what the base has, you know, what, what's the base game got and, and stretch it as far as it'll go. And then once you get that hurt for it with her, it's like once she gets that feeling of like, all right, I'm killing this game, you know, up the complexity, up the challenge. Or sometimes she'll just be like, what was it? Um, uh, Seven Wonders Duel with the Pantheon mm-hmm. expansion. Uh, I yeah. love it. She could totally oh, yeah. play. It. She could totally play it without it. For her, it's that all about that play. And she was just like, I don't really need it. And I was like, oh, okay, you know. And again, you know, every play. yeah, you know, <laughs> no Pantheon. Oh my god! I was all about it. I will crush you. I'm gonna crush you with you know. I'm gonna bring mother <laughs> the favor of the gods. And I'm like doing all that. And she's just like, I'm gonna have two wood. <laughs> I'm gonna play my wonder first. You know what? Gods you wonders. You know, I'm all over it. Well, <laughs> Make it sure wonder, depends. you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just whatever approach floats what your boat. Else? You know, I I just hope that your wife listens to this and hears you say, "My wife is simple." <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to gaming. Uh... Oh, oh man, December, uh, you are the best, and good luck <laughs> with <laughs> with Chris and his mouth. I love you very much. The last thing to wife. say about um, Rise of Fenris, real quick before we move on, is they just released a promotional scenario to sort of give you a feel of what the uh, game is, the campaign will feel like. So yeah. that's on BGG right now. It's a free thing. It's a one-page, pretty simple um, sort of. Uh, promotional scenario that just kind of changes how the game plays a little bit in a really interesting ways. So if you're interested in this at all, which it comes out uh, either at Gen Con for a pre-release or August 17th, check that promo out on BGG for sure. And I've loved the previous Scythe expansions and Scythe itself is still a great game. So I, I know I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, oh, me yeah. too. And I'm, and I'm reading right here too, that they are confirming it's not a legacy game. You can reset and replay this any number of times. So yep, that's absolutely kind of cool. right on. Jamie Stegmeier is probably super sensitive about, is it a legacy game? Is it not a legacy game? He had the, that original Tuscany expansion to Viticulture, like dabbled in like legacy campaign oh, elements yeah. and it, and it was like terribly implemented. And then there was, um, uh, the, the game charter stone was, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was kind of mediocrely received and there's a lot of, uh, dubious nature surrounding legacy games that I, I imagine that Stonemaier Games is just wanting to make sure everyone knows exactly what it is going forward in this. And, and that is sure. cool, you know, the replayability of a campaign. Like, um, I'm kind of all about that now. I don't need every game to be a legacy game. And oh, I'm... no, I'm generally not a fan of legacy games. There are some exceptions. I'm currently playing Legacy of Dragonhold, and that's a lot of fun. 
but mm-hmm. Pandemic Legacy was particularly underwhelming for me. Oh, okay. Well, I, I personally, I loved it, but um, I, I, my feelings walking away from it were that was really fun. I don't need everything to be a legacy game from here on out. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> this this was a good enough experience. Speaking of pandemic, Jack, you uh, had something on that topic. Yep. Oh yeah, just a a quick thing. Pandemic has a tenth anniversary edition coming out. It's kind of cool. It's in like a metal retro yep. case. It, it looks like a a, a physician's metal briefcase. You know, it, it almost looks like an army surplus type of thing from. I don't know, the the 1940s or 50s or something, and uh, or a first aid kit. That, that would be yeah. a good way of looking mm-hmm. at it. Okay. Um, and it has miniatures. If you pre-order it, you they're going to be like pre-painted. I, I'm not so hot on the miniatures. Like I could take or leave them. Sure. Um, and especially it depends on the, the paint job. But for me, um, I, I love like collector's editions of games, especially games that I, I really enjoy. Um, and so it's something I'm interested in. Uh, there there are some people who are like, I don't know about that artwork. The artwork doesn't look as good or or it's really the, the design layout on like the cards. They kind of yeah. did some different approaches. Some of the portraits of characters are the same. But it, it does look like a cool addition. I think it's going to be like a hundred bucks or something for is, retail. Yes. But you know, if you're into cool collector's edition things, you know that exists. And I actually gave away my copy of Pandemic not because I didn't love it, but because um, I had a friend who she was just about to get married, and she was like, "Hey." You know, are there any good two-player games out there that are a little bit beyond Carcassonne? And I was like, okay, I have an, a copy of Pandemic you can have. I have an extra copy of Kingdom Builder. You can have that. You know, the, these are good games to kind of get you started. And nice. so I gave away my copy. Now I have room in my collection for Pandemic. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that I can say definitively I don't like about this is unlike... Um, Ticket to Ride, the the collector's edition, which I love, uh, because Ticket to Ride is is such a great family game and a great game to play with um, like kids, and it's a great game to play with like parents and everything. Yep. We still get a good amount of use out of ours, and the anniversary edition is gorgeous. Like the 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 little trains are wonderful, and how they're different sculpts and looks and everything. But that one comes with the 1910 expansion included as part of the collector's I was edition, say, yeah. which makes it feel like a more complete package because everything is slightly different dimensions in that game. So it's not like you're going to be utilizing other expansions with the collector's edition. So you kind of got to be okay with it being its own standalone thing. So incorporating 1910 is really nice. Now, the Pandemic Collector's Edition looks to be just Pandemic, and that's the only real bummer, is I think Pandemic on its own vanilla is a good, but Not not, not amazing game. If this incorporated on the brink, 
which yep. just gives you so much more versatility. You yeah. can play it vanilla or you could play on the brink, which which just makes it a, a more robust and dynamic game than I I would in a heartbeat get it. As is right now, I'm kinda on the fence, you know. Like I said, I, I I'm open to the idea of another copy of Pandemic and I love these uh collector's edition games, but because they're different cards because it's different uh, backs, I'm sure, on the cards. You wouldn't be able to integrate an On the Brink expansion into this. And so I I don't know that I would love it in the same way that I, I get the enjoyment out of my Ticket to Ride Collector's mm-hmm. Edition. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly, 100%. That's the big thing for me that just holds me back. Luke, did you have something uh, you wanted to comment about on Kickstarter? Oh some God! Kickstarter yes. stuff. Uh, it's uh, some debacles. Oh Kickstarter right. Kickstarter is uh, a fun place, right? Yeah. Full <laughs> of uh, good times for everyone. Yeah, and honest projects. And oh yeah. Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. So the big one, the big one, as most people know, is Overturn Rising Sands. Um, which I don't know anything about the game itself. The only reason I know about this game is because the amount of backlash that has come from it, just insane. Um, So for those of you who aren't aware, this was a campaign that went up on Kickstarter. Um, And, you know, at first everyone was like, oh, this game looks awesome. There's a lot of cool stuff going on with it, so on and so forth. And then smart people started to look at the information and go, hmm, there are some huge issues here. Like, for instance, um, the game's location... The campaign suggested that the team is located in Canada. That is false. They are located in Pakistan, which right. according to Kickstarter policies, you can't launch a campaign out of Pakistan. Um, then the miniatures for the game. Um, so all of the miniatures were 3D rendered uh, for selling the game, you know, uh, to sort of present it, which looked beautiful and awesome and so on and so forth. Except, you know, they're 3D renders, and any pictures of the actual components look absolutely miserable and subpar and gross. Like, just really bad. Um, So a lot of people felt misled. Uh, But more importantly, entire chunks of the rulebook were copy and pasted out of uh, Massive Darkness's rulebook of Kumani or Not. Which is insane (laughs) oh yeah like word for word entire passages are just ripped out of that book straight up then straight up huh then there's some uh issues with their logo which was partially pulled from firefox's logo yep that that was crazy too it's just it just keeps going and going and so And, and they're they like released a statement at one point that was like Oh, that's our translator's problem. Yep. You know, we're we're we'll look into the issue, and this was all our translator's fault for for having the rule book just pulled from Cool Mini or Not. It, shady as hell. It, oh, it, absolutely. Wow. It's it's nuts. So that's been suspended indefinitely. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, well, the, in a way, that's a victory. You know, initially oh, it was like super funded. Like, I can't believe that people are so hungry for this type of stuff uh, to just like flashy miniatures and everything that, you know, so much was put into it as far as like 
consumer funding within the first couple of days. I mean, I guess no actual money transactions happened because the the Kickstarter hadn't ended. But, you know, so many people are hungry for the stuff that they weren't necessarily looking at the issues. But the attraction brought enough skeptical people to kind of bring the issues to the forefront. And initially, Kickstarter wasn't doing anything about it. Like, tons of people were complaining to Kickstarter, like, yo, you got to do something about this because... This is a super dubious, you know, project. Like this is this is not a legitimate thing, or there's enough reason to believe that it isn't legitimate. And so it is a victory that before the actual project closed and they could make that transaction, pulling that money, that Kickstarter suspended it. So at least there's some semblance of a happy ending here. Yeah. Um. So there was that one. Then there's. Of course, um, Cthulhu Death May Die, which everyone's talking about that sweet, sweet two-foot-tall Cthulhu statue Uh that is the game board for this game. Now, is this the one that was like people didn't jump on it in a couple days and then the price kept going up or something? Yes. Was that this one? Okay, okay. Yes. uh, So the game itself is like $150, but you can spend... $250 to get that sweet statue with it. And the statue is the game board? It functionally is, yes. Um, Okay. I believe that there's like, I I don't know the details about the lesser version, but I imagine there's a lesser game board version for that. That's not this towering, uh, you know, book, uh, what is it? Book end or whatever uh, for your shelf. Because this thing is huge. Like, it, it would come up to your knee kind of thing from what I understand. Um, and there are miniatures that can sit on the base of this statue, like cultists and stuff, to give it, like, scale. It's insane. Huh. But Crazy. Um, basically, people started to back it. And as they were backing it, the release date kept getting pushed further and further back because – you know, these gigantic statues aren't exactly super easy to print and make in an efficient amount of time. Yeah. And there's just been a ton of issues with the game as a whole, just in terms of like how people view it. Yeah, look at that thing. It's monstrous. That crazy. That is awesome, actually. <laughs> it looks cool, but it's like oh. super. Is absurd. this a Simon joint? I, I feel like uh, I recall Eric Lang being in some way tied to this. I would not be surprised. I have no doubt in my mind. Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head. This is definitely one of the ones I'm not super interested in because it's just ridiculous. It's just so insane. Um, But there's been a whole backlash on that. And then the last one, which is actually very not talked about, which I find to be interesting, was the Dr. Horrible sing-along blog board game. (laughs) Dude, Dr. Horrible is the best. So this is actually its 10-year anniversary this month Mm -hmm. and so uh these super fans i guess you could say wanted to make a game out of it and i've been following the their production of it for a little while and the game looks absolutely for lack of a better word amateurish yeah um the aesthetics are like super there's like you're you're so Dr. Horrible is leading the Evil League of Evil now and you have to try and audition and there are no characters from the actual show in the game. They're no like bad horse. clown man. 
or whatever, like just randos, and the art looks not great. It doesn't look good at all. And it just looks so – and like Dr. Um, uh, Captain Hammer has like a gray streak in his hair and looks super like – you know, secondhand store kind of level action figure kind of stuff. <laughs> and the campaign launched and it was funded in two hours. And I'm like, how? Like, how can people back this? And then someone realized that they had something in, um, you know, obstacles, the obstacle section about licensing. Yeah, they didn't have the rights, right? Yeah, people were like, um, <laughs> you actually have the rights to this IP? And they were like, well, we're talking to Joss right now, so by the end of the campaign, we should be fine. We should be fine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, that is, like, the first thing. Like, if you're going to make a Dr. Horrible sing-along blog, the board game, or any licensed board game, you start with a license. <laughs> Otherwise, make some knockoff. Like that—that's that, crazy to me that this was even a concern. I obviously that—that's the news. Oh yeah. Um, right. So man, like within three days of the campaign, he took it down and was like, "I'm sorry, I got a little excited, kind of blew my load there, and just kind of went for it, even though you know it's insane." Like. How, why, what, it doesn't make sense to me at all. He's looking to potentially get the rights and return to the campaign at some point and so on and so forth. I, I Joss can be co-creator on that. Yeah, I'm sure he really was pleased to be like, hey, do you want to okay this project? By the way, we already have it up on Kickstarter. No big deal. <laughs> hey, you know, Joss has already backed one disaster by hopping into the Justice League. So, you know what? He's no stranger to it. Hey, you know what? I think you guys uh, keep an eye out for my new Kickstarter game. Right? It's oh, called yeah. Doctor Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Announcing <laughs> here, <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Uh, all my licenses will be in place. I promise. So, and part of the bad league of bad. Yeah. All right. Um, Chris. I just wanted I wanted to say hi to um, what is now known as ATK Gaming LLC. Please check them out on Twitter. They're really great friends of the cardboard. Friends Harold, of the show. Eric yep. Street and Andy Zeller, two fantastic guys. Um, ATK Gaming LLC on Twitter. Check those guys out. They're really good friends of ours. So. Yeah, you guys got anything that, else you want to chat about today since we're hanging out? The only thing that I wanted to mention is mm -hmm. I thought it might be fun if next time that we do one of these, we have like a, a discussion topic that may give us kind of more more – focus uh, i was thinking Let's like games who we want to see new editions of and sure. i thought if um if anyone in the audience had any input of games they'd like to see new editions of that they could hit us up you know we're all on twitter i'll put that in the show notes all of our twitter handles or you can shoot mm -hmm. an email to cardboardherald at gmail.com because i still haven't gotten around to having like a domain based email i mean i have cardboardherald.com I, I should try to be some semblance of professional but i'm still like you can hit me up at my <laughs> gmail account um or you could just hit the the contact link at the top of the web page. Um, but yeah, if, if anyone in the audience out there uh, has any ideas of games that they want to see new editions of, whether they're super super old games or they're even games that are like, this is a good game, 
but there there's some intrinsic flaw that that holds back my enjoyment of it and i i would like to see either a, a modern uh modernized version of it right. by having kind of redeveloped rules a la say like you know uh, gaia project you know taking terraforming mars and really kind of fine-tuning it or or if it's something like um you know people are just really off put by the production quality of the the original game and are just wanting a new edition i know for a lot of people terraforming mars is a um in fact i just think i said that Gaia project was terraforming Mars, Terra Mystica. I don't know. I, it's easy for me to, to, to slip up with those two, but terraforming Mars, a lot of people are, have a problem with the visuals and the production values of that one. And I hear a lot of like, yeah, next time that there's a a new edition of the game that kind of addresses some of those issues, then I'll check it out. So, you know, if, you guys on the show or anyone in the audience has any thoughts on games that you want to see new editions of we'll talk about it next time on the show yes let us know now we got our homework assignments all of us all right uh oh, that's, a, that's a great thing to think about because <laughs> i'm gonna have to take a second look um and see because i know i've got something in my mind somewhere there swimming so i think that's a fantastic idea to tackle next next shot next time oh yeah yeah and that way we won't have to have like 30 percent of the show content taken up by us talking about star trek the next generation (laughs) (laughs) okay well this is gates mcfadden and uh cheryl mcfadden to you this is cheryl gates mcfadden with the cardboard heroes can i i can't say that i can't say that can i Okay, well, Chris McFadden. Chris McFadden. <laughs> this, is part where we, right. this is the part where we just, like, bullshit the rest of the show out, huh? No, I'm just yep, yep. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, let me, how you guys, you guys got anything else that you guys want to chat about? We make a turn. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, we had a good time. We made a great time. Great time hanging out with you two and you, the audience. That was my PBS sign-off. How did that go?